I have sat through my share of church services where some sensational preacher has tried to get people to doubt whether or not they are actually saved. I do not intend to cause those who are truly saved to question their salvation at all. If you have believed in Christ alone to save you, and have received Him into your life, then that settles it once and for all. God gives us the gift of eternal life. He gives us the gift of everlasting life. Uh, We're told, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Uh, Paul wrote, and grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Uh, Jesus said in John 6, He says, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Once you've given your heart to the Lord, once you've believed in Jesus alone for salvation, that salvation is secure, that salvation is eternal, that salvation can never be undone. Once you have become a new creation in Christ, it is final. Whether or not you are a good person moving forward or a bad person moving forward, it is final. Years ago, I knew a lady named Irene Trammell. Irene Trammell was a deacon's wife in a church where I worked as an assistant pastor. Irene said that she got saved. She was uh, received the Lord in, into her life when she was just 16 years old. She said, but nothing in my life changed. For the next 20 years, I still went out and I uh, slept around. She said, I drank and I smoked and I behaved in a way that was unseemly and ungodly. She said, I knew I was saved. She said, I was miserable while I was living that way, but if you'd have looked at me from the outside, you wouldn't have believed that I meant my conversion. She said, 20 years later, I got things settled with the Lord, and she said, I have been on fire for the Lord ever since. And that surely was true about her. I'm not here today to be your judge. Only God is your judge. I'm not here today to tell anyone that they're lost. Only God and you can know that and be certain of that. But what I am here today is to say to you that if you are not saved, that today is the day that you need to give your heart to the Lord. My sermon this morning is aimed at two groups of people. First, it's to those of you here who know that you are not saved. I'd like to challenge you this morning to give your heart to salvation and believe in Christ alone. Second, it's to those of you here who are lying to yourself and you're pretending to be saved. Uh, I want to say to you that deep down inside of your heart, if you look, you know that you're not. And I want to push you this morning to go ahead and make the decision to trust Christ As your Savior, what is salvation? I think uh, before we get any deeper into the sermon this morning, we need to articulate very clearly what salvation is and what it is not. Salvation is not a matter of you being a good person. Salvation is not a matter of whether or not you are baptized. Salvation is not a matter of whether or not your name is on a Baptist church role or a Catholic church role or a Presbyterian church role or a congregational church role. Salvation has nothing to do with where you go to church. Salvation has nothing to do with how good you are. Salvation has everything to do with what Jesus did for you on the cross and whether or not you have believed in Jesus and received His gift of salvation. There must come a time in your life where you turn to the Lord and humbly believe in Him alone. You give Him your heart's faith. 
Romans 10 verse 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Listen up. Listen up. Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. I'm going to ask our youth to stay seated unless it's an absolute emergency. Please, of all days, don't be a distraction today. Uh, That thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Notice there, you must confess with your mouth and you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says, thou shalt be saved. Not thou might be saved or maybe thou shalt, thou art saved. No, thou shalt be saved. When I was a small boy, I was sitting in church on a Sunday evening and the preacher preached a sermon about heaven and hell. And I walked down to the front of the auditorium at the end of the sermon. I sat on the front row on this side and I, I, um, I, I sat with my father and my father explained some very simple uh, things to me. He explained to me four things in all actuality. He explained to me that I was a sinner. Oh, I had no problem understanding that. I had gotten in trouble that afternoon for disobeying my mother. And so I had no problem understanding that I was a sinner. He explained to me that sinners uh, must suffer uh, uh, the punishment of their sin. And I had no problem understanding that either because my father had taken me in the bedroom and taken a paddle and spanked by behind for being disobedient. So I understood sin and I understood consequences. But then he shared the most wonderful news with me. He told me that Jesus Christ had come and had gone through hell on the cross in my place. He had been punished for me. And then he looked at me and said, in order for you uh, to make this thing final, in order for you to go to heaven, you must humble your heart and believe in Jesus by faith in your heart. And if you'll call out to him right now, he will save you. I bowed my head and I prayed a very simple prayer. I said to the Lord basically this. I said, dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I know that I deserve to be punished in hell for my sin. I thank you for dying on the cross and suffering my hell in my place. I invite you into my heart. I ask that you forgive my sin. Save my soul. Take me to heaven. And that day, something amazing happened. God washed away my past sins. He washed away my present sins. And He washed away my voluminous uh, future sins. I was four years old. I'm 40 now. I have committed a lot of sins in the last 36 years. But the Lord washed even all of those away. He forgave me of all of them. That day, my name was sealed in the Lamb's book of life. Back in Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that there is a catching away of the saints that is going to happen. No one except God the Father knows the day that this will happen. Look at verse 36. Matthew 24, look at verse 36 with me. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noe, or Noah, were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noe entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came, and took them all the way, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. 
When it happens, when the catching away of the church saints happens, there will be those who are taken up and there will be those who will be left behind. Look at verse number 40. Look down at verse number 40. Then shall two be in the field. One shall be taken, the other left. Two men shall be grinding, or two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Look at Jesus says here, watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord shall come, but know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, read verse 44 with me. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Jesus is coming one day. Those who put their faith in Him alone, He's going to take out of this earth. He's going to take them to heaven to be with Him. And the Bible tells us here in Matthew 24 that there will be two men who will be working together in the field. Acquaintances at least. Maybe even friends. Maybe even friends that believe or act as though they are both saved. But one of them will be taken out of here. The other one will be left standing in the field because they uh, maybe acted like a believer but weren't. Uh, There will be two women who will be grinding at the mill or maybe working in a kitchen together. Imagine you have a girlfriend over. You guys are there making uh, a pastry that you can enjoy along with some coffee. And one of you has got the mixing bowl out. You're working that mixing bowl. The other one over there is getting the coffee ready. And all of a sudden, the Lord comes back and one of you is standing there at the mixing bowl while the other one is gone. You'll be left behind. You'll be left behind to face a terrible time of tribulation where the Antichrist will rule this earth in a way that is ugly and atrocious, as well as the punishing hand of God coming down on the earth. I want to ask a question this morning to each one of you. I want you to pretend for a moment as though it's just me and you. And I want to ask you directly a question. Here it is. If Jesus were to come back right now, right this moment, during this church service, and take away those who are saved, would you be taken or would you be left sitting here? Would you be left sitting here? I heard someone say one time, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised by a couple things. We're going to be surprised by who is there. There's going to be some people who were saved and you didn't know they were saved. And you're going to be shocked to see them there. What? You were saved? I would have never known it by the way you lived. But what's going to be more surprising is not who is there. What's going to be more surprising is who isn't there. There are Baptist deacons who will go to hell. There are choir members who will go to hell. There are people who were raised in a Baptist church from cradle to grave who will go to hell. I don't want us to sit here and pretend that just because your name is on a membership roll or because you have a place on a pew in this building where people know your name and you have a good reputation, that that necessarily makes you a lock for heaven. That's just not how it works. Years ago, I heard my father preach a sermon. I was just a child. As I mentioned a moment ago, I've heard thousands and thousands of sermons in my lifetime. 
I don't remember most of them. I don't even remember most of the sermons that I've preached. But I remembered this one. The sermon was entitled 8-3-1. He said this, he said Jesus had 12 disciples. He said eight of them were very mediocre. They just, you know, they were saved. They were followers of Christ, but they didn't really stand out, at least not while Jesus was here. And you know, that's most Christians today. They go to church. They, they do enough. They're, they're saved. They believed in Jesus. And you know, they do their, they do, they do their part, but, but they're not really a standout. And then there was a second group. Those were the three. That was the inner circle of Jesus. That was Peter, James, and John. And they stood out. They excelled. I mean, they were all in. They were passionate. They were desirous. Uh, the Lord brought them in close and taught them a little bit deeper. But then there was that one. That one who followed Jesus, but he was nothing more than an imposter. You see, he was fake. He told people that he loved Jesus, but he didn't. He would end up betraying Jesus with a kiss. He would end up hanging himself, committing suicide. And while everyone believed that he was a follower of the Lord, he would end up going to hell. One out of twelve. One out of twelve. That's just a little more than 8%. If that statistic holds true, and we have our average attendance on a Sunday morning, and that means 20 of you here today are not actually saved. That means 20 of you would be left behind statistically. That means that if Jesus came back right now, those left in the room would have to look down in shame and know I was living a lie. Look with me at Matthew 13. Matthew, we're in Matthew 24. Flip back over to Matthew 13. Now Jesus told us that there would be those who would make their way into church communities and would look saved but would indeed be lost. Look at Matthew 13, look at verse 24. If you're here this morning and you have a Bible, I want you to use it, please, I ask of you. If you don't have a Bible, but you have a Bible app on your phone, you put your phone in do not disturb mode and then read along in your Bible. Right, please, everybody, everybody use the Bible. I'm going to preach today, but my words are nowhere near as powerful as God's words are. And I want God's word to pierce your heart. Look at verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed in his field. What is that good seed? It's the gospel. It's the message that Jesus wants to save your soul. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came unto, uh, came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. 
The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Look at what Jesus said here about the tares and the wheat. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, bind them in bundles to do what? To burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Look at this. Jesus said that there will be those who are tares among the wheat. They look the part. They act the part. They talk the part. They dress the part. But they're nothing more than a fake and a phony. And one day God says, I will divide the tares from the wheat. I will burn the tares and I will gather the wheat into my barn or into heaven. If you have yet to put your faith in Christ alone, then by faith, you need to invite Him into your heart. Listen to what Revelation 3 verse 20 says. Just listen for me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, Jesus says this, I will come into him. Into where? Into your heart. I will come into him and sup or commune with him and he with me. I want to ask a favor of each one of you this morning. Here's my favor I want to ask of each of you. If while I'm preaching today, you feel a knock on your heart's door. And God is saying to you what he is saying is true, and that's you. I want to ask you a favor. Will you open the door and let Jesus in today? Will you do that? How many here today say, if God reveals to me that I am not saved, and if I sense that he is knocking on my heart's door, I commit, Pastor, to open the door and let him in. Would you raise your hand for me? Would you do that? I believe that there are many who go to churches, much like this one. They hear the gospel preached week in and week out, but they're not truly saved. They've become inoculated. They've become used to hearing the gospel, and they've just about tuned it out. Christ warns that one day He will come back for His own, and when He does, there will be those who will be left behind to suffer at the hands of the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. Those who die in their sins will suffer the wrath of God and the justice of God in hell forever and ever. Let's look at three types of people that Jesus Christ describes who have yet to truly believe in Jesus for salvation. Number one, we encourage you to write these down on the back of that bulletin. Number one, notice the procrastinator. The procrastinator. Go back with me to Matthew 24 and look at verse number 48. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming. Look at verse 50. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of. 
Now, we've all been guilty of procrastinating at different times in our lives. You've got something that you're, you know you're supposed to do, but you just really don't want to do it, and you put it off, right? You put it off, and you put it off, and you put it off until the last minute, and then you step up and you do it. Maybe that is a work project, or maybe that is some kind of household chore. Remember, my mom would give me chores to do around the house, and she'd give me a deadline to have them done by, and I would wait to the last minute to get that done. Or my dad would make me cut the lawn and then I'd wait until the very last minute before I knew he was coming home and I would hurry up and get it done. But maybe the time of procrastination that cost me the most was college. I got to college and I loved the uh, the idea of living outside of my parents' home and having a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, liberty and freedom. And, and, and I enjoyed uh, having uh, uh, the responsibility of being an adult and not having a mom and dad always looking over my shoulder, right? And I had been the valedictorian in high school. You say, Pastor, you were the valedictorian in your high school? That is impressive. Yeah, there were five kids in my class, all right? Uh, so don't be too impressed by that, all right? Five kids in my class. It wasn't like I was the valedictorian of 200 students. Uh, but I was the valedictorian of my class. And uh, I went to college, and I uh, ended up having to work a full-time job. I uh, worked an hour from the college campus. And so I'm just helping you to... I'm lessening the blow of your lowered opinion of me here at a moment. And I'd go to classes, and they would give out the, you know, the syllabus. Do they still do that in college today? Give out a syllabus at the beginning of the semester? They'd give out that syllabus, and on there, it would have... Uh, work projects or books that needed to be read and a due date that that book needed to be read by. And then it would have papers that needed to be done and a due date that the papers needed to be completed by. And I'm going to tell you what I did my freshman, sophomore, and the first time through my junior year, because it took me two years to get through my junior year. Um, I'm so smart. I, I finished a four-year degree in five years. Amen. Uh, but um, uh, I, I remember uh, getting that syllabus and looking down at it and thinking, I got three and a half months to read that book. Eh, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I've got three and a half months to get that 12-page paper typed up. Eh, it can wait. It can wait. How many of you have done something similar in your life? Be honest. Raise your hand. Okay, good. I feel better about myself. Amen. You know, you know, right? The week leading up to... That paper being due was a lot of coffee, amen, and a lot of all-nighters where I'm up, you know, pick, a toothpick in my eyeball trying to type that paper, turning in a paper that's not well written. I got my transcript some years after I finished college, and I looked at them, I said, oh, I am never showing this to anybody, amen. I graduated, I, I passed, but barely, amen. All right, um, praise God for a slow start. I think I've picked up some speed since then, but... Uh, Procrastination can get us in trouble. Now, it's one thing to procrastinate over a class project where you know the deadline. It's a whole other thing to procrastinate over the eternality of your soul when you don't know when your death date is coming. Why do people wait to get saved? Letter A, some are preoccupied. Some are preoccupied. Look down with me at Luke chapter 14 and verse number 15. Uh, please do turn over there for me. Hold a plate. Hold your place in Matthew 24. Turn over to Luke chapter 14. I want everybody to see these verses here. Luke 14 and verse number 15. Make your way over there. Some are preoccupied. They have 
their attention elsewhere and they'll think, I'll just get saved later. I can push that down the road. I've got other things to tend to. I'll worry about getting saved at a later date. Look at verse 15. Look at there. It says, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So this person says, Man, to sit at the table in heaven and eat the bread of heaven, wow, that would be a blessing. Look what Jesus says about this. Then he said he unto him, A certain man, so this is a parallel of heaven, a certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. Then said one, um, then the, the first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servants, Servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. We see here that this man made a great supper and invited his friends and acquaintances to come and enjoy his banquet, but they all began to make excuses. One guy said, I just bought a new piece of property and I need to go check out this land. I can't come to your banquet and I've got to go check this out. Another said, I can't come because I've just bought some new cattle and I'm preoccupied checking out my new uh, buy here. And another man said, man, I just got married to a beautiful wife and I'm busy loving on her. I don't care about your silly banquet. I'm not coming to a banquet. I'm going to go and I'm going to kiss all over my wife. I don't want to have anything to do with your banquet. And so Jesus began by saying that this is a parallel of what? This is a parallel of eating bread or going into the kingdom of God. Many will not be there because when they were invited to get saved, they were too preoccupied with their land or their things or their relationships. And they were too preoccupied with those things to accept The gift of salvation. Far too many people will go to hell because they were preoccupied with temporary things that just really don't matter. I want you to listen to me very clear right now. In a million years, when you are falling through hell, it will not matter what kind of car you drove, who you married, How your kids were raised? Or whether or not you got that job promotion? Those things won't matter anymore. All that will matter a million years from now is whether or not you accepted Christ's invitation to believe on His name and be saved. Hey! Don't procrastinate another day. Some are preoccupied with things that are going to send them to hell. Letter B, some lack perspective. Some lack perspective. If you know where James is in your Bible, you are welcome to turn over there. If you don't, then just sit and let me read these verses to you. James chapter number 4. 
James chapter number 4 and verse number 13. James 4 verse 13. The Bible says, Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city. See the pre- presumptiveness here. Today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas as you know not what shall be on the morrow. You don't know what tomorrow holds. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. There are many who believe that since they are young and healthy, that they are in some way invincible. They believe that they can escape death. They believe that they will be around into their old age and can then worry about the idea of God in heaven and hell. I'll worry about that later when I'm older. I have my life to live right now. Maybe you will be around. Maybe you won't be. But one thing I know for certain, life is fragile. Sitting over here is Brother Charles Williams, uh, sergeant in the Stanford Police Force. You have seen firsthand, have you not, that life is fragile. You've seen people's lives come to an end suddenly in your line of work. And you know what? You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised the rest of today. Young people die suddenly all the time. Sometimes it's from an unknown health problem, and sometimes it's due to some accident. My mom's brother, Frank, my uncle Frank, he married a woman in um, second marriage for both of them, and uh, her name is Michelle. We lovingly know her as Aunt Michelle. Aunt Michelle had an adult son, who was helping someone with a breakdown on the side of the road. He's there on the side of a busy highway trying to change a tire. Someone who wasn't paying attention to what they were doing came across the line and hit him and killed him. My aunt lives in agony of soul to this day because of that happening. He was young. He was a he was a young man who had a wife and two or three small children who had to grow up without a daddy. He woke up that morning healthy. He woke up that morning happy. He woke up that morning with uh, his uh, vigor of life and he never made it to bed that night. Daniel Cockabun in his 20s fell from a second store balcony and died. Daniel was a missionary to Peru. I've been to the place where he fell. I have seen where he died. He left behind a wife who had only been married to for just a few short years. Daniel woke up that morning with all of his strength, just a 27, 28-year-old man, never made it to bed that night. If you would have said to Daniel that morning, this is your last day on planet Earth, he would have said there's no way. Mark Rader, another missionary, in March of last year, was out looking for a job. He was taking some time away from the mission field. He was in Wisconsin. He hit some black ice on the highway. He slid across traffic and head on into a semi-truck. Mark would die just a few hours later in the hospital. Maybe you live until you're 89 years old. 
And then you can lay in your hospice bed and consider what to do with the gift of eternal life. But then maybe again you won't. What is your life? James says it's like steam rolling off a pot. Here and then gone. And you don't know when it will be gone. There will be those in hell one day who knew the truth but ended up there because they procrastinated. Number one, I see out of Matthew 24, three types of people who knew the gospel but will go to hell. Number one, the procrastinator. Number two, let's look at the perverse. The perverse. Go back with me to Matthew 24 and verse number 49. I want everybody to see it. Please get there. Look at it in the Bible with me. The Bible says, And shall begin to smite his fellow servants. So we see the violent streak in this man, the angry, violent streak in this, this person. Look at the rest of it. And to eat and drink with who? The drunken. Look back up at verse 37. Jesus says, But as the days of Noah were, or Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, there's nothing wrong with being hydrated. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a meal. There's nothing wrong with a banquet setting. There's nothing wrong with getting married or giving a a child away to marriage. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that they were devoid of God. They were just consumed with the party life. They were running from one banquet to the next and just worried about having a good time and worried about uh, living it up and and, and worried about uh, uh, living a perverse lifestyle. In fact, how bad was it in Noah? His day. Uh, the Bible says, Jesus said that it, 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 when Jesus comes back for the church, it's going to be like it was in Noah's day. How bad was it? Genesis 6, 5. Uh, the Bible says, and God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, listen to this, was only evil continually. They didn't have good thoughts. They sat around and they had evil thoughts. Their imagination was wicked and evil. And God looked down on the earth, Genesis 6 says, and He he repented that He even made man. And had Noah not found grace in the sight of the Lord, God would have wiped all humanity off the planet and just destroyed all of us. But praise God that Noah found grace in the sight of God. We live in a world that is perverse. The average person wants nothing to do with God or the Bible. They care more about what some godless pop star thinks of them or what they think of some godless pop star than what their Creator does. Why? Because they are letter A. They are in love with self. They are in love with self. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul told Timothy, he said, This know also that in the last days, perilous times... Shall come. Here Paul is speaking of the same time that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. How do you know you're living in the last times? Well, listen to this and tell me if it doesn't describe our generation alive today. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. 
Covetous. I think we're two for two. Boasters. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. I think we're checking all the boxes. Unthankful. You know how many times I've done something nice for someone or my wife's done something nice for someone and they hardly even have a spirit of gratitude, much less a thank you note. Yeah, I deserve that. Unthankful. How about that next one? Unholy. Without natural affection. Can I tell you what that means? Natural affection is the sex act between a husband and wife. That's natural affection. Pornography is unnatural affection. And many of you are hooked on it. Men and women alike. Premarital sex is unnatural affection. Extramarital sex is unnatural affection. This alphabet soup thing, LG whatever, that's unnatural affection. Natural affection goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden When God made Adam and Eve, He did not make Adam and Steve. A youth pastor was asked to explain the Christian's view about the whole LGBT thing. And so he went into his truck and he pulled out two bolts and two nuts and he set the bolts on the table and he said, they don't work together. And she said, I get it now. I understand. I'm not trying to be hateful. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to preach the Bible. Natural affection. And hey, by the way, before you go throwing a rock at someone who's gay or lesbian, why don't you check out what your search history on your phone that you erased says? Because until Christians get off pornography, you really don't have much of a leg to stand on throwing rocks at other people. Natural affection. Back in Second Timothy. Truce breakers. Why do you think we have so many contracts and there are no more handshake deals? False accusers. Incontinent. Fierce. Despisers of those that are good. Preachers and Christians are made fun of on TV shows and movies like never before. Traitors. Heady. High-minded. How about this one? Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. This isn't just outside the church. There are people who go to church, they look godly, but there's no power there. We'll preach more about that in a minute. From such, turn away. Let's take just a few of these quickly here. Notice this one, lovers of their own selves. Last year, I flew a lot more than normal. I think I probably... I jumped on an airplane to leave Connecticut, uh, leave New York, Connecticut area, oh, I don't know, six or seven times. Let me tell you what I saw every time I went to the airport. I'm sitting in the terminal working on church work on my laptop, and I look over, and there's some 20-something-year-old guy or girl. And you know what they're doing? They got their cell phone out. Usually it's an iPhone, an iPhone. They got their cell phone out. Now everybody's looking, aren't they? You know what they're doing? Click. 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 The worst is the guys. Click. You say, Pastor, you're just jealous. They have hair and you don't. 
Maybe a little, okay? Maybe a little. I saw a girl one time, I think she must have taken a hundred pictures in about 20 minutes of herself. I wanted to walk over and say, you love you some you, don't you? Amen. Lovers of their own selves. We live in a culture that is obsessed with self. YouTube, iPhone, iPad, selfie sticks, selfie pictures. Girls spend hours putting on excessive amount of expensive makeup. And then when they wash it all off at the end of the day, they look like an entirely different person. We use filters over our pictures to make ourselves look younger and thinner. Why? All in the name of vanity. All in the name of loving our own selves. How about blasphemers? I wonder how many times a day the 8 billion people that walk this planet in some way use the holy name of our God in some blasphemous way. Boy, some people it's several times a minute. I bet over a trillion times a day God's name is taken in vain. And God from heaven looks down and said, I created them to love me and they just blaspheme me. I sent my son to die for them and they just use his name in vain all the time. But you know what? It's not just our words that blaspheme God. It's the way we live our lives. How about this one in 2 Timothy 3? Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Why do people love pleasure? And you know what premarital sex is, by the way? Extramarital sex is? It's a pursuit of pleasure. An adrenaline rush. You know you're doing wrong. But you're pursuing pleasure. Why do people pursue pleasure? Because they love themselves. They would rather do what makes them feel good instead of what is good. Sadly, what many fail to understand is that if you chase pleasure, what you end up with is emptiness and anxiety. Many will not consider the eternality of their own soul because they are only in love with themselves. But that's not the only reason. People are perverse. Letter A, in love with self. Letter B, in love with sin. In love with sin. Hey, by the way, this is no laughing matter. I wish I could help you to see how much God hates sin. You say, oh, I'm not that bad. Yeah, maybe compared to me, you're not that bad. Maybe if we were to sit down and put your life against mine, you are a little better than me. Or maybe you're even a lot better than me. But my friend, Pastor Lejeune is not the standard of holiness and righteousness. An almighty God who's never done anything wrong that hates sin, He is the standard. And when we line ourselves up to Him, there is none righteous, no, not one. 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to what Paul wrote. In verses 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Listen. Neither fornicators, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I have had times in my life that I have committed some of these sins, or at least I have violated the spirit of these laws. But I have been forgiven of these things at salvation. And when I do wrong, I'm struck with a deep sense of guilt and desire to walk away and amend my ways. Uh, Let me say this. If you can commit these sins and you can continue to commit them and there's no twinge of guilt inside of you, there's no poking on the inside of you, you shrug your shoulders and say, well, everybody else does it. What's the big deal? Then my friend, you right now really need to check your heart and see whether or not you're even saved. Where there is no conviction for sin, there's been no conversion from sin. A Christian is just as capable of living in fornication or living like a drunk, but there's something inside that's knocking on that heart and saying, hey, you need to knock that off. Hey, that's not right. Hey, you need to turn this thing around. Someone who's lost. Here I heard one preacher put it this way. He said, sinners, they, like a pig, they leap into sin, wallow around in it, and they love it. But Christians, they lapse into sin, and they loathe it. They hate it. They try to get up and run away from it. And if you can wallow around in your sin, and love your sin, and not even feel a twinge of guilt over your sin, then my friend, you had a false profession if you even had one at all. Some people would rather fornicate with their boyfriend or girlfriend than come to Christ for salvation. Some people love their clubs and their sensual dancing so much they have no desire to come to Christ. Some people love their booze and their drugs too much to consider what Christ has done on the cross. Their heart is in love with sin. And the last thing they want is to turn and believe in Christ to save them from the very sin that they're in love with. Someone once said this. They said the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. And I just want to say this morning, why are you so loyal to something that's destroying you? Sin might be fun for a season of life, but it will ruin you. Someone said sin will keep you longer or sin will uh, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. And when sin is finished with you, it will destroy you. It will kill you. It will kill your finances. It will kill your relationships. And eventually it will kill your soul in hellfire. Every Friday night, you can enjoy Friday nights at the bar. You can enjoy your fornicating lifestyle. You can enjoy stealing and coveting and idolizing the wicked people that our sinful culture likes to prop up. People like Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, movie stars like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, and Robert Downey Jr. and many others. They might entertain you with their sinful living and acting, but none of these people care about your soul. Only Jesus hung on a cross and died for your sins. Only Jesus loves your soul. And you want to run into sin and idolize a bunch of pop stars who did nothing for you and just want your money? And you, in essence, thumb your nose at Jesus who suffered on the tree to pay the price for your sins. You would rather be loyal to sin that's destroying you than turn to the Savior who died for you. 
And one day God's going to send you to rot in hell if you don't turn from your sin, you don't turn from your unbelief, and put your whole heart and trust in Jesus. You say, Pastor, that's some hard preaching. Pastor, that's not how you grow a big church. Pastor, I don't really care for that. Pastor, I don't know why you got to get up there and say it that way. Because someone's got to grab you by the collar and shake you real hard and say, Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! You're living in sin and I love you enough to tell you so that you don't die and go to hell. I don't preach this way because I hate you. I preach this way because I love you. Some of you need to make a commitment right now that you're going to walk away from a sinful lifestyle and you're going to give your heart to Christ. And by the way, you don't have to give up sin to get saved. You don't get, you don't get better to get saved. You get saved and then the Lord takes away those desires. And some of you today, you're like the guy I knew uh, back in Baltimore. I sat in his living room. I went through the gospel with him. I laid out for him what Jesus did on the cross. He looked at me and said, I don't want anything to do with that. And I said, why not? And he said, because I love my booze too much to get saved. I said to him, sir, you are playing a dangerous game with God. But I see yet one more type of person in Matthew 24 that Jesus says is hell bound. Not only the procrastinator, not only the perverse, but number three, the Pharisee. The Pharisee. Oh, there are those of you here, you may even be open with others about your sin, but then there are some here, and you have wickedness in your heart. You're playing a pretend game with everyone else. You're acting like you're saved, but deep down inside, you know... That you've never been saved and you know that God knows you've never been saved. Turn, uh, Look with me at Matthew 24 verse 51. The Bible says, And shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion. Look at this. With the hypocrites there shall be weeping. If there's any question about where we're talking about here, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's talk about the hypocrite or the Pharisee for a moment. Because churches are filled with them. Letter A, notice, their outward works. Their outward works. You're in Matthew 24. Look back with me one chapter at chapter 23. Matthew 23. Here Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's teaching just outside the temple. A multitude has gathered to hear Him teach. And standing behind the multitude, the Pharisees have come to observe and try to catch Jesus in His word, words. And so Jesus is going to talk to the multitudes and then teach over the multitudes and go right at these Pharisees. Look with me at verse number 1, Matthew 23. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So notice their position. They're sitting in a position of spiritual authority. Verse Verse 3, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. He says here, they're teaching you the right things. You need to listen to them and do what they say. Look here, but do not ye after their works. And if you want a definition for a Pharisee or a hypocrite, here it is. For they say and do not. Read those six words with me. Ready? For they say and do not. That's what a Pharisee is. They say all the right things. But boy, they don't do them themselves. Look down at verse 23. Jesus is going straight at them now. 
He's talking over the multitude and right at the Pharisees standing in the back. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe. Notice this outward work. Ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Look at verse 24. Ye blind guides which strain out a gnat. That's an Israeli colloquialism. Uh, their meaning, uh, you pay attention to the little details. Verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. Jesus says here that a Pharisee appears to have his works all together outwardly. They appear to be righteous. Boy, they tithe. They pay attention to small details. They know the truth and teach it to others. They know how to pray in church. They know how to match their clothes. They know how to tie their ties. They know just when to say amen during the preaching. They know just when to raise their hands in praise during the singing. You ask them to teach, boy, they can teach a class. They can help usher. They can work the nursery. They can teach a children's Bible study like you've never seen. They have the outward down pat. But they're as lost as the godless drunk down at the bar. Outwardly, they have it all together. But inwardly, inwardly, letter A, we see their outward works. Letter B, we see their inward wickedness. Look what Jesus said to these religious hypocrites. Look at verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. What you're teaching them is keeping them from heaven. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Boy, you're leading, you're not going to heaven and you're leading other people to not go to heaven. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Ye devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, ye can pass sea and land to make one proselyte, or make one into yourself, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. He said, you are busy making people a twofold child of hell. You think Pharisees are going to heaven? Absolutely not. They act like they're saved, but they're not. Boy, they can talk it up, but they're not saved. Look at chapter 23, verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. You're ignoring those things that matter. Judgment, mercy, and faith. And you need to understand God's judgment against sin, God's mercy toward you through the death of Christ on the cross, and that faith is the only way to heaven. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides would strain it and at, and what? Swallow a camel. Boy, you got the little things down, but look at the big, blatant, obvious camel sins in your life. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of what? 
extortion and excess. Outwardly, you look like the perfect Christian. But inwardly, you're filled with corruption and wickedness. Hear me now. You may appear to be good to your pastor. You may appear to be good in your community. You may appear to be good to your boss at work. You may appear to be good to your spouse and children. But a holy God, He sees every last one of your sins. You can't fool Him. He sees my wicked heart. He sees your wicked heart. The only way for you to be saved is not by trying to earn your way to heaven by what you do. The only way for you to be saved is by humbly coming to Jesus and inviting Him to save your soul. You do this by faith. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Jesus says, Behold... I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, he's not just knocking, he's calling your name. Joey, Stevie, Susan, Patty, Adam. He's calling your name, whatever your name is. If any man will open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. Or commune with Him and He with me. If Jesus came back right now, many of you in this room would be left sitting right where you are. Awkwardly in your seat. You're not saved and you know, and God knows, this is true. Maybe you're a procrastinator. Maybe it's because you're in love with the perverse sin in your life. Maybe it's because you are a Pharisee. But you must make a choice. You must choose to humble your heart. You must choose to believe in the one who died and rose from the dead to set you free. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Several hundred years ago, please listen to me with your head bowed and eye closed. <clears throat> 